Heavenly Father, if your law hadn't been our delight, we would have perished in our affliction. But Lord, we have come to understand the delight that is your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to delight in it once more as we look at it together. Oh Lord, we pray that we would see marvellous things in there about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are to respond to him, the one who has taught us so well. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue in looking at John chapter 13 together. And last week we saw how Jesus got up and washed his disciples' feet. And we saw how remarkable that was. What a surprising thing was that for him to do that as the Christ, as their rabbi, their teacher, to get down and wash his disciples' feet is very remarkable. And we saw that he was wanting to teach something in particular. He wasn't teaching simply that he was willing to wash their dirty feet. He was pointing to the fact that he was willing to wash their dirty sins away at the cross, an even more menial task, an even lower work, to actually go to the cross in all its shame, with all the guilt that was associated there, all the wrath of God that he was willing to go there and wash our sins away. And so we saw the encouragement that we are to have Jesus wash our sins away by confessing our sin and to confess our sin uh, as we come to him for the first time and then there's an ongoing of confession of sin as we regularly wash our feet in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said that there were a few reasons why Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and we looked at some of them last week, and particularly the one that it was to be a symbol for how he is to wash our sins away. This week I want to show another one that is given clearly in the text uh, in the verses that come after what we looked at last week, particularly verses 12 through to 17. And what's this reason that Jesus washes the disciples' feet? Well, it's to give them an example give them an example. And we see that in verse 14 where Jesus is speaking and he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus, by washing the disciples' feet, is setting an example for the disciples that they should be willing to serve one another Regardless of status, regardless of who they think they are, they should be willing to serve one another. Serve one another by physically helping people, and some people would say by even physically washing one another's feet. And this actually became a rite in the church, in the Christian church at one point, that people would spend time washing one another's feet, and it's something that people who call themselves Christians today still do in certain denominations. They uh, have this time where you actually take your shoes off and you wash one another's feet. It'd be similar to having communion together or having baptism. They see it as one of those things that the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do. But I think if you think that's what Jesus is teaching here, that we're to physically wash one another's feet, like literally, then you kind of miss the point of the passage. I mean, it's given as a command to his disciples, generally speaking, that meant to wash one another's feet. And so I think it applies to all of Christendom, to all those who are true Christians of the Lord Jesus Christ, are to take practical application from these verses. But not everybody can actually wash one another's feet. When you get a bit older, apparently, I haven't found this yet myself, it gets difficult to get down just to wash your own feet, let alone to wash somebody else's feet. And sometimes uh, you may be limited in some disability that you cannot get down to wash people's feet. Feet. But that's not the only reason I reject the idea that this is teaching that we're meant to physically wash each other's feet just like we physically come and share at the Lord's table together. I think that 
Uh, we see in the early church that there was no indication that people did this. You look in the book of Acts, you don't see anything like that, but you see the regular breaking of bread, you see baptism, you see those ordinances that the Lord Jesus gave being practiced. It's not till many centuries later that we see the introduction of the physical washing of one another's feet. And I think it really misses the greater application that is being made here. If you limit it down to physically washing people's feet, uh, then you miss the greater application and the even lowlier tasks that we should be willing to do for one another. There are even more menial tasks than washing feet in our day, particularly when most people's feet are pretty clean. If I was to take my shoes and socks off here today, I'm sure you would be quite surprised if they were caked in mud. My feet are pretty clean and I'm sure yours are too, particularly if you've had a shower or a wash this morning of some sort. So in our culture, there's actually lower tasks than washing people's feet. And I think if you just restrict it to foot washing, then you miss the greater application that the Lord Jesus is wanting to give us. But I also think there's a greater application that should be made that goes beyond even physical service of one another. I think there's a greater application. There's another one that I want to focus on particularly this morning. And what is that? Well, what did we look at last week when we saw that Jesus washed the disciples' feet to teach what? To teach the washing away of sins. He wanted to teach that this is a symbol gesture. This is a symbolic gesture of washing away of sins, of taking care of the disciples' sins. And so if that is what Jesus is trying to teach here, then I think that is what he is trying to teach us to do to one another as well, that we are meant to be taking care of the sins of one another. Now, how do you take care of one another's sins? Well, we can rebuke one another when we see someone in sin, and that's a hard job. It's not fun, although some people may find it fun. I don't generally enjoy telling someone that what they're doing is sinful. Uh, It could be that we uh, help them by encouraging someone and exhorting them to do what is right. Uh, But that's hard work as well, to try and be encouraging to people. Some people seem to have a natural gift for it. Others really struggle with it. And it's hard work to encourage someone to live in obedience. It can also be that you can help wash moral filth away from people by praying for them. And we saw that as an example, King Solomon there. What does he pray at the end of that section that we read this morning? He asks that God would forgive, forgive the sins of the Israelites as they pray to the Lord. And we can do that too. We can ask for moral filth, sin, to be washed away from one another by praying for those people. But I think the greater application then, the way that we really deal with the moral filth, the sin of one another, what is the way that we should deal with it, the way that Jesus dealt with his disciples in their moral filth? Well, it's by forgiving sin, by overlooking sin and forgiving sin. That's what Jesus is trying to teach there, that he is willing to forgive them all their moral filth. By his work at the cross, he is showing forgiveness of sins. And that is what we are meant to do as well. We're meant to forgive one another of our sins. We're meant to wash people's sins out of our minds. That's what you do when you forgive someone of their sins. You say, I will no longer bring this up in my mind. I will no longer bring it up with you. I will no longer bring it up with other people. 
That sin is washed, is cleansed from my mind. Now, I can't easily forget something that's passive, that happens naturally. You don't actively try and forget something. If you try to forget something, then you remember it and you keep on remembering it instead of forgetting it. Forgetting just happens naturally over time. But you make a promise when you forgive someone that I am going to, as much as it depends upon me, not allow your sin to come up in my mind. To think about it, to think about it and say things to you about it or to say things to other people about your sin. And so Jesus is tying here his forgiveness of sins with our forgiveness of sins of one another. Just as he has forgiven us our sins and he shows that by the washing of our feet. So we should be willing to wash the feet of others by forgiving their sins as well. And it's often tied together. The forgiveness of sins by the Lord Jesus Christ, the washing away of our filth, is often tied with our washing filth of those who've sinned against us from our lives as well. And the classic example, of course, is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, page 960 of your church Bibles, if you'd like to look it up. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, page 960. Page 960, Matthew chapter 6. And I'll read read the whole of the Lord's Prayer from verse 9. Verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6, page 960. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, did you catch it? Did you catch the forgiveness of sins from the Lord Jesus, how it's connected to our forgiveness of sins of one another? I think people often rattle this off and don't actually make that connection. They're very happy to pray the first part of verse 12, forgive us our debts, but they forget about the second part or they just rattle through it. As we also have forgiven our debtors. It's an underemphasized line often in the Lord's Prayer, but it's interesting that it's the very line that the Lord Jesus wanted to emphasize. What happens after the Lord's Prayer? What do we read next in the Sermon on the Mount? Verse 14. Does he talk about the kingdom coming? Does he talk about the will being done? No, what does he say in verse 14? For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Does he stop there? No, he keeps going. Verse 15, he flips it. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. See how forgiveness of sins from the Lord Jesus, the washing away of filth, is very closely connected to our washing away of the filth of others from our lives. This is a scary line in the Lord's Prayer. Because what's it saying? If you can't forgive people in your life for their sins, God hasn't forgiven you for your sins, which means you're not a Christian. You can't be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ's forgiveness of your sins and then go and hold other people's sins against them. So Jesus, I think, is giving us a wonderful illustration in John chapter 13 of the importance of forgiving one another's sins. Now, why would Jesus need to do this? Why would he need to get up and take off his cloak and and do this menial task just so that the disciples would get the fact that they need to forgive one another's sins as well as be willing to serve in other different ways? It's because the disciples were so arrogant, so proud, that they couldn't bear the thought of doing menial tasks for one another and, I'm sure, forgiving one another of their sins. 
It's interesting how we are not willing to forgive one another. Why? Because of pride. Because of pride. We think, how dare that person do that to me? They should show me greater respect. And so we're not willing to let it go. And the disciples, am I making something up that they were proud people? What do we read in Luke's Gospel at this very meal that we're being told about in John's Gospel? Look with me at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, page 1044. Luke chapter 22, page 1044, reading from verse 24. Verse 24, Luke 22, verse 24. At the table that they're eating and drinking with the Lord Jesus this last supper... What happens? Verse 24, Luke tells us. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater the one who who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. See the disciples? What do they struggle with? Pride. Who is the greatest? They're trying to work out who is the greatest. And this is a common thing. This isn't the only time they discuss this. They discuss it on the road and Jesus is aware of it. It was a common thing for the disciples to look at one another and think, I'm greater than that person, but am I greater than that disciple? They were constantly looking at one another and trying to work out which one is the greatest. And what does that then mean? If you're concerned about whether you're greater than others, then you're not going to be concerned to forgive one another. And are we any different today? No, we are often in that state where we think we are too good to serve others. And that includes forgiving others. We may happily deal with another person's sins by exhorting them, by rebuking them. It's always, for some people, it's good to rebuke another person, makes us feel good. But not by forgiving them, by not letting go their sin against us. And that unforgiving spirit shows the high view we have of ourselves. How dare that person do that to me? And so when people think that John chapter 13 is about physically washing one another's feet, I think they've missed the harder task, which is to let sin go, to let people's sin against you go. Sometimes I think I'd far rather wash someone's foot than let their sin go from my mind. To forgive them is much harder than actually physically giving them a foot bath. And I've washed a lot of people's feet. I was a podiatrist, so it's not that hard. You get over it eventually. It would be so much easier for me to wash my enemy's feet than to forgive them for what they've done. And so Jesus is giving us this wonderful illustration in John chapter 13 of how we are to bring about forgiveness of sin in our lives. Because we here we have in John chapter 13 the Son of God himself condescending to forgive, to wash away the filth of his disciples. And that means that if he can do it, we have no excuse 
for not doing it for one another. And that's what he pretty much says in verse 16. Verse 16 of John chapter 13. If you flipped over to Luke's Gospel, come back with me to John chapter 13, page 1067. 1067, verse 16. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, why would he say that? He's saying, look at me. I am the one who sends you. Look at me. I am your master. I am your Lord. Now, are you going to say you're greater than me by holding against someone their sin? I'm willing to forgive people their sin. And I'm the sinless son of God. I'm willing to let it go. You are not greater than me. You should be willing to let sin go as well. And so Jesus is actually giving us a wonderful teaching here and revealing to us that true forgiveness of sins is found in Christ's forgiveness of our sin. If we're conscious of our own sin, we won't be so conscious of the sin of others. If we're conscious of how filthy our feet are, we're not so conscious of the filth that people are flicking at us because we realise how dirty we are ourselves. And if we're conscious of the fact that Christ has forgiven us for our filth, then we will be willing to forgive the filth of others. Otherwise, we look just like hypocrites. And that's what the parable of the unmerciful servant is so powerful in drawing out in Matthew chapter 18. We won't look at it now, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, of this man who is forgiven by the king so much debt, and then he was not willing to forgive the debt of one of his fellow servants, a small debt. He looks like a complete hypocrite in the face of the forgiveness that he has found. And so it's not surprising then that forgiveness of others has characterised the Christian church, that the Christians are known as being a people who are forgiving. And it can be the sign of even true revival happening within a church, that there is this confession of sin and this hunger for forgiveness from one another, but also from the Lord. I've just been reading a book on the Korean Pentecost. So this is an account of revival that broke out in Korea. Uh, in the early uh, 1900s, and it's by William Blair and Bruce Hunt. Uh, so William Blair was the person, a missionary that was in Korea when it happened, and he'd been going around teaching the church there, and, uh, and he gives an account of, of when the revival really started, when the, uh, the Holy Spirit descended in great power. And I'm going to read a section from this book for you now about what happened. He says, We were aware that bad feeling existed between several of our church officers, especially between a Mr Kang and a Mr Kim. Mr Kang confessed his hatred for Mr Kim on Monday night, but Mr Kim was silent. As the meeting progressed, I could see Mr Kim sitting with the elders at the back of the pulpit with his head down. Bowing where I sat, I asked God to help him, and looking up, I saw him coming forward, holding to the pulpit he made his confession. I have been guilty of fighting against God. Even as an elder in the church, I have been guilty of hating not only Mr. Kang, but Pang Mok Sa. Now, Pang Mok Sa is my Korean name. That's the missionary giving it a record. He said he's just confessed that he has hated one of the other elders in the church, but also me, and I was completely unaware of it. I would never had a greater surprise in my life. To think that this man, my associate in the men's association, had been hating me without my knowing it. 
It seems that I had said something to him one day in the hurry of managing a school field day exercise which gave offence, and he had not been able to forgive me. Turning to me, he said, Can you forgive me? Can you pray for me? I stood up and began to pray, Father, Father, and got no further. It seemed as if the roof was lifted from the building and the Spirit of God came down from heaven in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. Then, and there's a bit more that I've cut out. If you'd like to read the rest, you can borrow the book from me. Then began a meeting the like of which I had never seen before, nor wished to see again, unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. So here he sees this sight with the congregation that he wishes he would never see again. And why was that? Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of that judgment saw themselves as God saw them. Their sin rose up in all their vileness till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out, the face of man forgotten. Looking up to heaven to Jesus whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailings, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten, nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed of small consequence. If only God forgave. We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin. I've had mine, but I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. There's an account of how the Spirit of God leads people to understand their own filth in the eyes of God and are therefore willing to confess their sin and forgive one another because they see how filthy they are. So how could they not forgive their brother or sister for what they have done? So are we a people here at Dremoyne Baptist who wash the feet of others by washing their moral filth, their sin from our minds, by seeking to remember it no more as much as it depends upon us? Well, such washing only comes through that forgiveness. Or are you this morning here like a plumber who enters the palace of the Lord Jesus Christ smelling foul after working all day in a sewer? You wash in Christ's shower... You put on fresh clothes that Christ provides. While Christ is outside the bathroom mopping the floor where you have dripped stuff all through his lovely palace. And as you come out of the bathroom, as you've been washed by the blessings of the Lord Jesus, a little brother walks past with a cup of orange juice and bumps into you and knocks some orange juice onto your clean clothes. And you lose the plot. And you say, I'll never forgive you for this. Look what you've done. And you do it all in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's standing there still with the mop after he's cleaned up your mess. Could that be you? Think of people in your life that you may even consider enemies and the things that they have done to you that you have not been willing to forgive. 
And even here, I think we see not just the importance of forgiving one another, but also the overlooking of the many small offences that Christ overlooks, that we never confess. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus doesn't require us to confess every single sin that we have done in our life. He overlooks many that we are completely unaware of. He just overlooks them, forgives them, says it's okay. You don't have to confess every single sin. Yes, it's good for you to confess the actual sins that you do consider, that you do think of, but there's many sins that you're completely unaware of. And that is what we should be doing with one another if we are to follow the example that Jesus has given us. Forgive those sins that our people confess to us, but overlook the many offences, the many people, many small offences that people commit against us. Romans 12 verse 18 says, If it is possible as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. If we want to be a nitpicker, we will always find nits to pick on other people and to tell other people about those nits that we can see in somebody else. Christians and non-Christians will always have dirt that we can be offended about. But if we know our own nits, our own dirt, and we know it very clearly what we have done against the Almighty God and against our fellow man, and we also know that Christ overlooks those nits all the time, then we should be willing to overlook the nits of others. We should be willing to do that. Why? Because the Lord Jesus commands it. That's what he's told us here in chapter 13. He's commanded us that we owe this to our fellow men. Verse 14 says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. The word should there in uh, the NIV translation that we're using doesn't bring it out as well, but the word there, the Greek word, is the idea of owing or being obligated to someone. And another translation has ought to. This is what we owe to our fellow men. Jesus has told us that we owe this to our fellow men to wash their dirt from our lives. And that includes washing out their sin from our lives. But Jesus also gives us an encouragement to do this. He tells us to do it, but he gives us a good reason to do so. And what is that? Verse 17. Verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Not just know that you're supposed to forgive others and overlook their offences like the Lord Jesus has done for you, but you actually do it. And if you do it, you will be blessed. And we can see this in the lives of those around us, those who have a forgiving spirit. We can see the blessing that comes to their life. There is freedom and peace that comes from forgiving others. There's a freedom in forgiving people. Whereas bitterness and resentment that come from an unforgiving spirit rots away at people. And you can see people where their lives have just been rotted away. They're just so focused on the sins of all those around them that their lives just fall apart. And there's no joy, there's no freedom there. And it also comes when you consider the, the overlooking of offences of others as well, things that they haven't even confessed to you. If you go around looking at the dirt in people, it's a depressing life to live. Whereas if you go around looking at the good that God is working, particularly in your brothers and sisters in Christ, who can actually do good by the power of the Spirit, then there's a joy and a delight in life 
You can look at the nits, or you can look at the hair that is there, that the nits love as well. You can look at the hair and say, isn't that beautiful? You can look at the good that's in your brother and sister's life and overlook the dirt that's always there, this side of glory. Just overlook it, wash it away from your mind and concentrate on the good that is around you and you will be blessed, the Lord Jesus says. You will have a much happier life if you just overlook the sins of others and forgive their sins, let them go and concentrate on the good that God is doing in the lives of those around you. Let's come to our God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Oh Lord, as we come before you, as we've looked at this passage together, we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for not forgiving others and overlooking their offences. Oh Lord, we thank you for the example you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ of one who forgave, the one who overlooked offence, who was willing to wash physical dirt but also spiritual dirt away from him and from us. Lord, we pray that we would be able to follow his example and we pray that there would be no sin that someone commits against us that we would deem too great for us to forgive by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.